Welcome to the Sticks and Stones podcast, bringing you interviews with people from across the globe who are changing the face of sexual health for the better. This is the place to hear about new approaches and initiatives in sexual health, best practice, challenges, and to meet some of the people who are driving change from around the world. My name is Nick Mallon, and I administer the SDI International Exchange, or Sticks. I hope you enjoy today's conversation, and please subscribe to receive future episodes. Today, I'm delighted to bring you an interview with Adrian Kelly, who is the lead commissioner of the Sexual Health London programme. Sexual Health London, or SHL, is the world's largest publicly funded remote testing programme. So for those of you who heard the episode with Tim Alston, which focused on the technology of remote testing, this brings a different angle to remote testing in the UK, very much focusing on the health promotion side. And I'm sure you'll all find the conversation with Adrian extremely interesting. Adrian, great to have you on the podcast. How are you? Good, thanks, Nick. Tell me, Adrian, what's your official job title? And tell me a little bit about your activities, what you do. Uh, so I'm a, the lead commissioner for the e-service contract in London, the Sexual Health e-service contract. And I'm part of a small team, the London Sexual Health Programme, Transformation Programme, a small team based in one of the authorities in London. We work on behalf of nearly all of the councils in London to transform the way people use sexual health services, particularly those people who just need a routine checkup every now and then. Maybe they've changed their partner. Um, instead of having to take hours off work and wait in a clinic to be seen, they can um, now go online, register with us, answer some questions about their sexual health needs that help us determine what test kit we send out. We send that test kit to them at home or they can pick it up in a clinic. They sample at home, send their samples back in the post. They're analysed at the laboratory in a day or two and they get their results online. If they need follow-up testing or follow-up treatment, then we support them to access physical clinics where confirmatory tests and, and ongoing care can be provided. How did you get into your role at Sexual Health London? I've worked all my life in public health, working on sexual health through various kind of reorganisations in UK health policy. In particular, historically, I've been more focused on young people, so um, organising citywide condom distribution schemes for young people or um, coordinating the teenage pregnancy strategy across London and before that working with young offenders, young men in the criminal justice system around sexual health and parenting. But I started out in HIV prevention and, and young people in the second half of the 90s, which was a pretty dark time for sexual health. The annual AIDS deaths in the UK were peaking around that time and the the culture then was really hostile towards HIV specifically and towards the, the communities and the groups that were most affected by it. But my background is health promotion and, and that's what I love. I'm not a clinician. Um, I'm not a public health consultant. My background is a health promotion 
practitioner. And that's what I love about the e-service in terms of full circle, that health promotion, as WHO defines it, is about giving communities the resources they need to take care of their own well-being. And that's what remote testing, self-sampling does. We give them the kit that means they can take their own samples, draw their own blood, send it back, access their results. It's a big shift away from that traditional kind of healthcare practitioner, doctor or nurse, and and a patient as a kind of passive recipient of healthcare. The user's in control from the beginning right through to the end, and they're driving the whole pathway, including the speed with which they complete them. So we've had people walk into a clinic and pick up a kit at lunchtime, self-sample that afternoon, stick it in the post that evening and get their results the next day. Just over a 24-hour turnaround on a postal service. It's remarkable. That's the exception rather than the norm, but I say it because it illustrates how the pathway is completely driven by the user rather than by the provider. So self-sampling or remote testing, as it's known in in some countries like the US, how has that taken off with uh, London as Adrian? And I imagine you saw a huge rise during the COVID period. Yep. I mean, we we started January 2018. It took us a, a few months to get around all of the clinics in London and really embed the service in those clinics so that the clinicians there knew how to access the patient results to provide care and that kind of thing. We had an ambition to move maybe a, a third of the STI testing that happened online. It was going quite well. We were broadly just about there at the end of 2019, that ratio of about one third online, two thirds in clinics. And then the pandemic hit and people really couldn't get into clinics unless they had very, very, very serious symptoms that were really urgent. And so at the request of the clinics, we broadened our eligibility criteria so that people with low risk symptoms could test with us partners of contacts, people like that. And that's when we saw things really, really lift off. At the moment, we're issuing about 50,000 test kits every single month. About 80% of them will get returned to us for testing. Since January 2018, we've issued over a million test kits. Fantastic. Those are very, very impressive numbers. It's not the number that impresses me the most in terms of the the service that's being provided. Everyone gets asked towards the end of the pathway, what do they think of the service? And they can rate it out of five or, or they say, would they recommend it to their friends or family? And we get really high response rates. Well over half the people reply to the SMS, which is really impressive. And consistently, 99% of them say they would recommend it to their friends or they rate it three or more stars out of five. So that really tells me that the service is right from the service user perspective. We just wouldn't have those kind of digits continuously throughout on a high return rate unless the service was what people wanted. Yep. And that's staggering in terms of of numbers and a testament to, to the work that you're doing. And is there a specific demographic or demographics that that tend to use the service more than others? 
Yeah, and we we monitor this and we look at the data across testing in clinics and testing online. And and obviously, sexually transmitted infections are strong in the UK, strongly associated with living in a more deprived neighbourhood, being young, so under 25 in particular, being from particular racially minoritized groups so um, more HIV need amongst black African people and uh, more STI need among black Caribbean people and then of course gay and bisexual men particularly in the context of widely available free PrEP for preventing HIV um, which needs high frequency STI testing so we've really seen numbers or demand for STI testing among gay and bisexual and other men who have sex with men really, really increase over the last few years as more and more men are using PrEP to prevent themselves from getting HIV. I mean, that does mean that there's less condom usage in that group. We think that's probably behind increases in in some of the bacterial infections, which just reinforces the need to really... um, find those bacterial infections in that group really, really quickly to get it treated and prevent the kind of chains of transmission extending onwards and outwards. So Adrian, what's the situation regarding PrEP in the UK? So PrEP is now available free for anyone that needs it through sexual health clinics only at the moment. The impact trial finished last year And everyone's now just off the trial and on routinely commissioned and paid for PrEP. But the data from the trial that went before it tells us that while uptake by gay and bisexual men has been really, really strong, and we've seen the corresponding fall in new infections in in that group, we've not seen falls in new infections in other groups that are more likely to be diagnosed with HIV and to be diagnosed later. So um, we know we've got some work to do over the coming months and years to really um, increase awareness of and uptake of PrEP by key groups that are currently underrepresented. And they would particularly be black African and heterosexual people, particularly women, trans, non-binary and other gender minority groups and younger adults. So while uptake by gay and bisexual men is generally good, We know that younger gay and bisexual men and gay and bisexual men who are black or another ethnic minority group need to see improvement in uptake and awareness. Lovely. Thank you very much for that, Adrian. And and hopefully we will see greater access to PrEP and and greater awareness amongst those communities. And Adrian, you mentioned the fact that people in deprived areas and and those segments are more likely to use the service. Is it a pull or a push strategy? So is it that they're attracted towards the service or, you know, going back to health promotion, are you targeting your activities to engage those particular segments? I think at the beginning, when you're launching something quite new, those some of those communities, and we've seen this play out with COVID, haven't we, in terms of marginalised communities and, and being quite wary of novel approaches new things particularly where there may be an online dimension to them so i think it's probably safe to say that the lower risk groups were probably the early adopters of the service the people with 
greater need. We're already very well engaged into the clinics and the service they get from those clinics has been great. So they, they've not felt the need to kind of make the leap. I guess one of the, in terms of equalities, one of the things that really stands out in the data is gender and women, the, the proportion of women that will use the online service. And of course, time is a really key resource. And if you have to take a lot of time off of work to go to a sexual health clinic, to get tested, it, that's a very different kettle of fish. If you've got childcare responsibilities, if in addition to working full time and those kind of things. So London's got a lot of time poor women who really do appreciate the convenience of online testing. I think some of those um, more marginal communities just needed to see the service established and trusted by more and more people before they would make the move across but the pandemic has has really really helped that and and of course the clinics they worked a bit more intensively in, in transferring people across through kind of teleconsultations so when those users went back to their clinic and called up to try and get in the clinicians could give them telephone reassurance about the quality of the service the confidentiality of it that kind of thing and so they maybe came across because they got a bit more support. Given the complexity of London, 31 different boroughs, a big population, what would you say, Adrian, makes this program so successful? You know, it's the largest publicly funded remote testing program globally, as far as we know. The level of need in London's population was already so great. The level of need for sexual health care was already so great and it just kept going up and up and PrEP came along and it was just going up more and more and more. And that costs the government more and more money year on year, year on year. And, and it was just skyrocketing in London and it was just not sustainable from a kind of financial perspective. And, and in order to try and control those costs, what was happening was that we were almost controlling who could get into clinics and providing online channels as part of the mix, which cost far less than the cost of operating a clinic in central London, in, in you know, really expensive city. It was just made perfect sense. We'd already had years of chlamydia screening programs, of HIV postal testing services happening in the UK. So we knew that remote testing was acceptable and it would work. What we didn't know was whether it could work at the kind of this kind of scale in London and across so many district councils and across uh, local government councils and across so many NHS clinics. And so all of the councils in London and all of the NHS in London had to get together and agree to work together to bring online services into the mix and to make those online pathways available, particularly to the lower risk people who could just take care of themselves at home. And people embraced it. And it's really, really helped us to square that circle of meeting the rising demand for sexual health within such a resource constrained environment we've been able to see the level of testing going up and up and up in line with what people need because we found a more efficient way of organizing our resources and our pathways across the whole city and i'd add nick it's not just about the cost so 
when the service, the contract was awarded to Preventex, the kind of bid, the application was reviewed in terms of cost, in terms of finance, but actually most of the waiting on the review of the, the bid was about quality. And for this to really work and be a success in London, we had to have a really high quality e-service that kind of matched the quality provided by our clinics. It couldn't be a kind of cheap, second rate, second best offer. It had to be top notch. And the successful bidder had to really demonstrate that they could meet that aspiration around quality, which they've done. We're told again and again by by service users that it's a key part of why they love it. The convenience, the user experience, the ease of the online kind of interface, as well as the ease of just being able to stick it in a post box afterwards. And just to clarify, Adrian, it's free to the user. So yeah, free open access sexual health care has existed in in the United Kingdom for over 100 years. It predates the NHS. In fact, the network of sexual health clinics was the kind of earliest form of the National Health Service in England. And when the National Health Service was subsequently created, it just hoovered up, absorbed the sexual health clinics. So obviously, the National Health Service is the national system of healthcare in the UK. Everyone pays through general taxation. Everyone gets their needs met free at the point of delivery according to need. In most cases, there are some exceptions, things like dental, optical, etc. And tell me a little bit about your team. Adrian, how many of you are there? How how do you divide your roles? So there's three full-time people and two two part-time people. The the director is part-time, half-time. He works as a director of public health in one of the local authorities the rest of his his time. He's a public health consultant, provides the kind of public health leadership for the team, makes sure that what we're doing kind of meets the needs of directors of public health in London. They're ultimately responsible for the, the health of the population in their area and every area has a director of public health then we've got a finance officer and contracts officer who processes all the payments we have a commissioning manager and he really works with the authorities on the clinic contracts so that thing of making sure that the clinic contracts and the e-service contract work together to help transform the system overall and move the system on from being a clinic-based one to a kind of mixed economy of online and in clinic. And then we've got some business support who has to take notes for lots and lots of meetings with lots of acronyms. And in terms of future projects for the Sexual Health London programme, what are they, Adrian? Well, with the pandemic, in particularly in some areas, there were real problems with access to contraception, particularly longer acting methods, so um, IUDs, coils. And it's not not that we can provide those remotely, but in order to free up the capacity in the clinics to focus on clearing backlogs of demand for um, longer acting methods of contraception, we've got pathways now for a really extensive range of um, user-dependent methods, but that does include um, the patch, the nuvering, things like that, as well as emergency contraception. And 
we cover about a third of the authorities with that service at the moment. We'd definitely like to see that um, extend out and beyond. We're really keen to make life easier for people who are using PrEP to prevent HIV. So their routine renal monitoring, ordering um, their drugs, but those are longer term projects and certainly turned out to be a lot more complicated than we hope they would be at the beginning. Do you get a lot of inquiries from other cities in the UK and across the globe, Adrian, given the success of Sexual Health London? Obviously, with the pandemic, lots of colleagues in in public health all around the world have been kind of consumed with with other things so it's possibly been a a little bit quieter on that on that front but back in 2019 London hosted the international conference for fast track cities so this is the initiative of getting to zero new infections of HIV it's a kind of declaration by cities all across Good practice between them and, and we we presented on the work of the London e-service at that international conference and um, there was interest f- from literally the four corners of the globe. They're interested to know how we overcome the regulatory problems and I think Regulation seems to be a bigger barrier in other parts of the world than it does in the UK. I mean, there is a lot of regulation that we had to overcome, but it didn't feel as insurmountable as others kind of talk about it. Also, they're really intrigued to know why our return rates are are so high, 80%. I think in a lot of areas, a lot of areas where they've done small-scale pilots, People haven't embraced it in the same way. I think, again, going back to that issue about key groups that you're trying to engage with, if they think it's something that's here today and gone tomorrow, they're not going to have confidence in it. If if you haven't got confidence in it to make it available permanently and embed it within your kind of sexual health system in the way London does, you've got to have confidence in it. And then the the, the patient or the customer will have confidence in it as well. The fact that it's completely free as well, that's what people don't understand is how we get such high return rates when people are getting it for free because you'd think they were less inclined to fulfil, complete the pathway. But that's not the case at all. So final question, Adrian, and this is one that we throw open to all of our all of our guests on the podcast. If somebody who wants to go into sexual health asked you for a piece of advice, what would that be? What are the key things that you've learned over your career in sexual health? I think in this job more than even more than all the other jobs is about the importance of relationships and effective partnerships. So that idea of mutual equals within relationships. So if you can't get that right, it's nearly impossible to get anything done. It doesn't matter how clever you are or how smart you are or how passionate you are if you're not working with people where they're at developing shared agendas and priorities and programs together then you're never going to make difference at population scale and I'm in public health so population scale is now what primarily drives me whereas when I started out doing maybe one-to-one 
working advice it was very much about the individual and the relationship with them and 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 in terms of what i do now to get that impact at scale you've got to manage really complex relationships with lots and lots of different stakeholders with very different priorities so the funders the patient the clinicians the supplier their subcontractors all of that relationships is the key that's a great way to end the podcast adrian relationships well thank you so much for that adrian really interesting and insightful look forward to speaking again soon thank you so much thank you nick it's always great working with sticks and and the insight we get from the people that you connect us to around the world about their um, difficulties but also about their enthusiasm for remote testing where they live but also for remote testing and that we're doing it really helps to um, encourage us and know that we're on the right track and and that this is something that needs to be shared as widely as possible thanks so much adrian so thank you for listening to the sticks and stones podcast i have found that conversation with adrian really stimulating and enjoyable and i hope you did too for our next episode we'll be going to the us and um, speaking to jen hecht from building healthy online communities part of the san francisco aids foundation and they're doing a lot of innovation around remote testing and promoting SDI testing um, across diverse communities. So please tune in for that episode. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe. And if you do have a moment to rate and review us, it really does help other people to find this content. And remember, you can also follow us on Twitter under Sticks STI. That's Sticks S-T-I-I-X S-T-I. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Sticks and Stones is produced by Birdline Media.